How do I know what I think until I see what I say? The Green Notebook, carried by military leaders around the world. Within those pages are sweat, tears, triumphs, and the hard-won lessons of life. Lessons worth sharing. Each week, the team dives into the notebooks of military leaders, business professionals, authors, athletes and coaches, and entertainers to share lessons and help you lead with the best version of yourself. Today's episode is sponsored by Adaton. I got to know Adaton's co-founders, James and JJ, several years ago. They are former Army NCOs who have years of experience in the tech industry. They have firsthand knowledge of what it's like to serve and truly listen to service members in order to understand the critical challenges they face today. Adaton understands that most military jobs are not performed behind a computer desk. They kept hearing leaders ask for a better way to support and care for their people, regardless of their location. This led to the development of Adaton's flagship software product, Muster, spelled M-U-S-T-R. Muster is like a digital knife hand. It streamlines the daily task of ensuring people accountability, resilience, and automation of data calls that currently rely on phone trees, text messages, and manual data entries into Excel spreadsheets. Muster revolutionizes the way leaders take care of their people, which is their primary responsibility, not sitting for hours in front of their computers. Many branches of the military are now utilizing Muster. The time is right for leaders to get involved and see the impact it can have. If you're interested in making an impact or learning about what other units are doing, reach out to Adaton. For a limited time only, listeners of the From the Green Notebook podcast can try out Muster for free. Visit adaton.io slash FTGN to get started. That's A-D-Y-T-O-N dot I-O forward slash F-T-G-N. Welcome to another episode of From the Green Notebook. I'm your host, Joe Byerly, and this week we're diving into the notebook of screenwriter term novelist Terry Hayes. Terry is the author of the recently released thriller, The Year of the Locust, and the international bestseller, I Am Pilgrim. In this interview, we discuss Terry's evolution as a storyteller from being an investigative journalist to working on Mad Max films with legendary director George Miller, as well as collaborating closely with stars like Mel Gibson and Nicole Kidman. We then dive into Terry's decision to leave it all behind to write novels with no guarantees of success. We also spend a good portion of this interview talking about the self-doubt that comes with any creative endeavor and how you have to put your head down do the work and fight through it word by word and paragraph by paragraph. This episode isn't just about writing. It's about finding the courage to trace your dreams, the strength to bear the weight of success, and the grace to thrive through adversities. So grab your green notebooks and please welcome to the show, Terry Hayes. Terry, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you, and thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to talk to you. It's a really cool story, actually. I was talking with uh, David Brown from Simon Schuster about you know some potential books that were coming out, and he says, I have a book that's going to be one of the best books of 2024. And then 
I said, sure, like, let me know a little bit more about it. And the next email he sent was, I never thought I'd ever be sending this email, but after 10 years of waiting, Terry Hayes has finished his second book, The Year of the Locust. And so I quit reading what the book was about and said, I like to read it. And so um, one of the things that I, I sometimes like to do, especially with fiction, is not to read the synopsis of the book. It's just to read the book and let the story unfold, kind of like how life does. And so, um, you know, people have asked me about the Year of the Locust, and I say, it's like somebody told you about a really good show on Amazon, and then all of a sudden you found yourself binging all 10 seasons of it um, <laughs> straight through. So, so the book was absolutely amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much. You know, I wrote an earlier book called I Am Pilgrim, and uh, that was my first novel, and I devoured every review, whatever anybody said on Amazon or Goodreads or anywhere else, I would read it. I'd write their name down if they only gave me one star, and I'd think to myself, vengeance is coming, vengeance <laughs> is coming. Well, I exhausted myself doing that. And this time I said, I'm not reading any reviews. I wrote the best book that I possibly could. I, and, you know, I don't know if it's a good book, but it was the best I could do. So I haven't read any of the reviews. And so you're one of the first people to give me a reaction. Thank God, Joe. Thank God it's positive. Otherwise, I think I, I'll, I'll plunge into depression for the next year. But no, it's, <laughs> look, it's lovely. To, it's wonderful to hear, you know, that, look, I, I'm a writer. I've made movies, I've done many things, but basically I'm a storyteller. And when you get the opportunity to interact with somebody who's read one of your stories and has gone on the journey with you, that's a wonderful thing. That truly is the reward in itself. And so it's lovely to be here. And, and thank you so much for the positive reaction. Well, I appreciate it. And uh, I'm actually, I'm 100 pages right now into I Am Pilgrim. I have no idea what the book's about either. Like I haven't read the synopsis. Um, I'm just diving into it and it's the same exact experience, but I, I want to talk about the writing process for both of those books and kind of, you know, what you went through, but I want to back up a little bit. You've shifted career. This is your third career now, I think, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah um, I can't hold a job. Yeah. <laughs> could you just share a little bit about your background before you decided to grow up and become a novelist? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I Look, my grandfather was a soldier in the British Army. He was a regular soldier, and he uh, came from Ireland and was probably not the best educated person in the world, and uh, he achieved the exalted rank of corporal. And then my dad was captain in the British Army during the Second World War, and that was the only time my grandfather ever cried. My grandfather had been a prisoner of war for four years, you know, in the First World War and uh, had a terrible time of it and nothing ever broke him. And, you know, quite impoverished circumstances, really, going that far back in the family. And um, my dad was a very intelligent man and um, he made it to officer school during the Second World War. And that was a very unique thing to do in Britain at that time, which was very class-oriented. And if you didn't speak with the right accent or go to the right schools, you know, you were not necessarily going to climb that high in the British Army. But Dad dad went to officer school and um, the only time my grandfather, according to my father, ever cried was the day that he saw his son walking down the street coming home in the uniform of a British officer. And that was so joyous for my grandfather. 
So my dad went to Burma and uh, wow. he tells me, the way he told me, the first time he ever saw a Japanese person, was somebody was trying to kill him. And wow. so he was 19 and uh, he and my mum got married two days before he shipped out. And uh, they had a two-day honeymoon and then he went to went ended up in Burma fighting. And, uh, of course, my mother never knew whether she would see him again. And that dad came back from the war and Britain was not the place that he'd left. And in many ways it wasn't the country that he'd fought for because, it, you know, it had expended all of its, its wealth in the Second World War and there were not many opportunities. So my dad came up with the brilliant idea that we should move to Australia and it was just my brother and myself. My brother was three years older than me. So we emigrated to Australia and uh, I was five. And it was tough. It was really tough because it was the worst bushfire season, wildfire season that Australia had known. We arrived right in the middle of it. And my mother would tell the story about how I packed my little suitcase and said, well, let's go home. We lived in not a very nice place, but it was on a ridge line and it looked out towards what circles Sydney, the Blue Mountains. And um, they were all on fire. That was our introduction to Australia. But I started to read. I didn't know anybody. It was very lonely. My mother was a very, very troubled woman, uh, psychologically, mentally troubled, which was hard. And uh, we were in this alien landscape. And uh, so I started to read. I read a lot. And pretty soon I thought, well, this is interesting. Can't be that hard. Go up the library. Look at the wall behind you, Joe. Full of books. Can't be that hard. Plenty of people are doing it. <laughs> so, so I never knew a time in my life when I wasn't going to be a writer. It was always that. I was lucky. You know, I, I had a, a mission and it was to be a writer. So I became a journalist. I was sent to New York as the youngest foreign correspondent Australia had ever sent. I was 21, landed in New York and uh, started to report could travel anywhere. If you could think up any story, you could go there. It was wonderful. And 21 years old, they gave me an apartment opposite the Dakota where John Lennon lived and a credit card. Now, what sort of organisation gives a 21-year-old in New York a credit card? And that was when I knew financially the company was doomed. They couldn't possibly (laughs) survive. (laughs) They were letting idiots like me loose with a company credit card. So I saw a lot of America, a lot of South America. Did some, you know, I'm not saying the stories I wrote were great, but they were great topics to write about. And uh, one of those topics was the way that the CIA manipulated, did a lot of not such good things to get Australia involved in the Vietnam War. And uh, so, of course, Australia made a great contribution. Not perhaps not in numbers, but I think the Australian troops were always really worth their money. And uh, I think throughout many conflicts, you know, going way back to Gallipoli and the First World War, the Boer War, I think Australians have always acquitted themselves with honour and uh, and courage. Not all of them, but generally they held it in high regard. So we ended up in Vietnam and it was just as much a disaster for Australia as it turned out to be for America, the political side of it, the public protests, all of those things. So I did that from New York. How did the CIA get us into it? 
of what did our politicians know, what lies did they tell the country? And so that became quite a an occasion, the publication of that. I nearly lost my job, and so did the editor. But we we hung on. And then I became a radio producer of a, Australia's top-rating current affairs radio show, and a guy walked into my office and uh, he said, uh, would you be interested in writing screenplays? And I said, oh, oh I, I guess, <laughs> I guess. I was relatively well-known in Australia, and he'd read a, a book by Pauline Kael that the best screenwriters in the world are former journalists. So he thought, oh, well, she knows a thing or two. So anyway, he said, do you want to come and have a look at this movie I've made? I said, oh, yeah. So he showed it to me on a 17-inch black and white TV set with uh, sitting on a lounge room floor of some place where he was staying, and half the scenes were missing. And he said, uh, what do you think? I said, oh, it was interesting. You know, that's what you always say in movies when, when a director asks you what you think. So you say, oh, it was interesting, <laughs> you know. So I said, what do you think of the lead actor? I said, oh, a handsome guy. I said, how old is he? So oh, he's 20 or something. He said, I think he's going to be a movie star. I said, oh, yeah, well, you'd know I wouldn't. I said, what's his name? He said, oh, Mel Gibson. And uh, I said, oh, yeah, okay. And uh, the movie was Mad Max and yeah. the director was George Miller who went on to win a number of Oscars. And so I wrote a few of the Mad Max movies with George and then, you know, got a career in the movies as a screenwriter and then decided that uh, there wasn't a future in that <laughs> anymore. You know, the movie business has changed. So I became a novelist and here we are. <laughs> So how long were you in Hollywood doing the screenwriting thing? Um, I guess I went there at about, oh, gee, God, you ask hard questions. Um, <laughs> 30 years, I guess. I've listened to so many interviews with you over the last couple of weeks. Like, I, I know all the answers to the questions, but um, no, but like things like that, I was wondering while, because you never, you talked about this time, and I, but I always wondered, like, how long were you there? And then what was the, you know, the kind of the trigger for you were like, okay, it's it's time for the next thing? Well, that's partly my my nature, you know. Should I be a successful novelist and live long enough? I, I'm thinking of becoming an artist. I can't draw. I know nothing about perspective or colour. It just has to stay interesting to me. So it's partly my nature, but secondly, because I was an outsider, which is Hollywood. I mean, everybody's an outsider in Hollywood, really. Even if you're American, you're an outsider because Hollywood's a weird place. You know, you might grow up thinking, oh, I'll go and live in Hollywood, but it's really like Brussels for the EU, you know, like it gathers people from all around the world who go to Hollywood to make movies. So I was an outsider, which was nothing unusual. But I, at being an ex-journalist and an investigative reporter and all of these things, I cast a critical eye over things. And uh, I was very fortunate. I was really fortunate. I didn't know this at the time. I saw the last gasp of Hollywood Babylon. I saw it before it became corporate. I was there when there were the girls and the cocaine and the incredibly terrible behaviour. And people were making awful movies, but some people were making brilliant movies. It was wild. Now, yeah, I, I don't do drugs and I'm happily married and all of that, but it was very interesting. I go to a party, 
every Friday night there was a party at Bob Evans. He's dead now, but a producer and um, have a party there. And Jack Nicholson would be there and Warren Baby and Heidi Fleiss, the Hollywood madam, and she'd have her girls there. And I remember talking to one woman there and uh, saying, oh, what do you do? She said, oh, I'm an actress. I said, oh, that's good. And I could I think, what, what has she been in? I, you know, I think, I, I don't know. I can't place her. And I said, um, what sort of films do you do? I mean, do you do horror films? I said, well, no, I do much shorter films. She said, sometimes with two guys, sometimes with three, oh, sometimes. With, I was thinking, oh, okay, Terry, you really are a kid from the sticks, aren't you? You know, I like to think of myself as relatively worldly, but clearly not. And she was a really nice person. But that was the Hollywood, you know. Um, now that's all gone now. And with it went a lot of the vitality and the vibrancy of it all. You know, when I went to Hollywood, I think the major studios were probably making about 130, 140 movies a year between them. Now I think they'd be lucky to be making 30. Yeah, there's a lot more stuff on streaming, but the bets are so huge. You know, when you have Martin Scorsese spending $300 million on a picture, you know, that's very, very serious. And that means that a lot of smaller movies are not being made. And often the smaller movies are more interesting ones. So I looked at this. I thought, it's so hard to get things made. It is so hard. On Pocahontas, a Disney, you know, animated film, well, funnily enough, with, with Mel Gibson doing the starring role of The Voice, uh, the, the, the voice acting. I think there were 29 writers and producers on it. So what do you do? You sit there with your kids and you say, now, wait, wait, wait. That line of dialogue, I wrote that. Now, <laughs> now we can all go out and get popcorn. And that was never my idea. That was not what I wanted. I, I thought I had something to say and maybe I do, maybe I don't, but I, I felt like I had something to contribute and I'd like it to be mine. So I said to my wife one day, you know, I don't think I want to do screenplays anymore. She said, oh, what do you want to do? I said, well, I'm going to write a novel, which is what I'd always want to do. She said, oh, yeah, that's good. She said, do you get paid for it? I said, I don't know, really. I, she said, is there money in it? I, I said, I don't know. So I think at that stage, I'm not saying anything that hasn't been in Variety and all of those things. I was getting about one and a half million a script. So anyway, I decided to write a few hundred pages of a novel and submit it, which I did. And uh, thankfully, some publishers, both in the UK and, and and the US, decided that maybe this was worth having a shot at, you know, maybe you should finish this. So anyway, my agent called me up and they said, anyway, they want to do a deal. Congratulations. I said, oh, that's great. Terrific. So we talked about it for a while. And I said, what are they paying? So $80,000 as an advance. I got off the phone. I said to my wife, I think our lifestyle is going to change significantly. She said, how much? And I said, a lot, a lot. We've, you better start looking at the prices of things before we buy them. And that, because it was Hollywood, you know. And and I'd made some successful movies and, you know, and, 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 that, and we didn't have any kids and now we end up with four children. So I saw the way the wind was blowing and I was lucky. I could jump to novels. I think that's such a crazy leap. To go from something that you know you're good at, but you know this is the one thing that you've always wanted to do, and to make that leap to do it. Were you nervous at all? I just, again, as I was listening to your interviews, 
just, you know, putting myself in your shoes, I think that'd be the scariest leap, you know, to make. My dad told me something about being in combat. He said to me, he said, if you knew how bad it was going to be and how scary it was, you wouldn't do it. That's very similar to me. If I knew how tough writing a novel was and how scary it was to be 400 pages in and feel, well, I'm only halfway and I don't know how this is going to end. I don't know what happens next. I wouldn't have done it. Just like Dad. He was 19. He was ignorant. And, of course, ignorance is a wonderful thing. (laughs) What's your excuse? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it was sort of like, oh, yeah, well, I'll just sit down and write a few pages and see how I go. It got really interesting. I realised a very very important thing. Uh, I've said this a number of times, but uh, Ray Charles once, uh, Billy Joel had just broken big with Piano Man, and uh, he met Ray Charles. And Ray Charles said to him, listen, I'll give you one piece of advice. Make sure you love the music you're playing now. Make sure you love it more than anything. And Billy Joel said to him, why? And he said, and Ray Charles said, because you're going to be playing it for the rest of your life. So I think in the movies I had an opportunity to keep playing the same music. I could have been the Bee Gees tribute band, but I didn't want to be. I wanted to keep it interesting, do something different. And so when I came up with the idea of writing I Am Pilgrim, it was sort of exciting, but it was really based, Joey, in, in ignorance. You know, I was courageous looking back, but only courageous because I had no idea what I was getting into and how complicated it would be and how I could have spent years writing a novel that nobody read, you know, and, and that was really the most frightening thing. I mean, imagine you seeing yourself as a storyteller and you spent years developing this story. You know, you get the campfire going, the timber wolves are howling outside the cave and you think, right, this is going to knock their socks off and nobody comes. Just say the tribe all decides that the antelope hopes are, uh, the antelope hunt is a lot more interesting than some idiot sitting around a campfire. So that was when it got scary. I thought, my God, I've devoted so much of my time, my, my mental energy, I've ignored my family uh, to do this. Say nobody even buys it. Say it just nobody pays any attention. That's when it got really worrying. When you're hundreds of pages in, page zero to 200 was like, oh, this is fun. I don't have to talk to idiots at studios. I can just do what I want to do. But after that, it got tough. I want to talk about that for a little bit. This is something like near and dear to me. So last December, I made it December 22. I made a decision that every Sunday in 2023, and I was going to finish by the end of the year, I was going to release a small essay, nothing crazy, just, you know, 400 to 800 words. And it was going to follow the arc of the hero's journey. And it was going to be something that I would finish you know, by the end of 2023, maybe I'd have 25,000 words. Right. And uh, as a note, like I'm still in it. I haven't finished yet. I'm still going and it's going into 2024 now, but I committed to it. And there were times where I remember being like, I don't know where this is going. I know how the story ends, but I don't know how I'm going to get from M to Z. 
And uh, there's just this panic that sets. And I've told all these people. So I'm just curious, like when you had those moments of fear and self-doubt, what was the thing looking back now that kind of got you through to the other side? Yeah, there was a, there was a book written called One Bird at a Time, which nobody knows about, but it is interesting. Is it Anne Lamott's book? She talks about her brother had an essay due. That's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you and I are the only two people in the world that know that. Yeah, and well, you know the story. He had an essay due about birds of America. Yeah. And the night before, he spoke to his father. It's my memory of it. You'll correct me. I've probably much better memory than me. He spoke to his father and said, well, I've got this essay. <laughs> his father said, well, how much have you done? He said, none. And he's got to do this whole thing on birds of America. His father gave him a great piece of advice. One bird at a time. That's how we start. We do one bird at a time. When you've done one bird, you do second bird. And I often used to think of that. I'd say, okay, and this is a great piece of advice from, from George Miller about how you make movies. You've got to play every moment into the next one. Every moment must link into the next one. No matter what you might want to do, no matter what the actor might want to do, no matter anything, it has to play truthfully into the next moment. So when I would get stuck, I'd go back and I'd read the last 20 pages. And Raymond Chandler, great novelist, a wonderful, wonderful novelist, terrible alcohol problem, went to Hollywood and hated it. Uh, and so I sympathise with him, but a great novelist. He said a terrific idea. He said, if in doubt, have a blonde come through the door with a gun. <laughs> oh, well, why? <laughs> Who cares? Uh, what happens? I don't know. But at least make it interesting. So I'd read 10 pages through, 20 pages through, and I'd try to throw out all my preconceived ideas. And I'd say, okay, what happens next? What is the most outrageous thing that can happen? Break free of the idea that you know the story. Let the story tell you. You know, it's very easy, I think, when you're writing to not write anymore, to just type. Big difference between typing and writing. Writing is sitting there thinking, well, what about this? Or wouldn't it be cool? Or, wow, uh, why don't I do such and such? And you think, no, that's a really bad idea. Bob Dylan says you've got to write 100 songs to find one good one. Well, on Locust, down the bottom of my, my document, I can see how many words I've written. And in the final book, there's about 260,000 words. I can't remember exactly, but it's like that. Down the bottom of my document, it's a million and 70. I threw out 800,000. Yeah. Were they all finished? Was it all brilliant prose? No, of course not. But to me, yeah, I'm frightened. I'm scared the whole time. I'm scared that I'm not good enough and that, you know, that, Everybody's better than me, and I've really screwed this up, and nobody's going to read it. When they do read it, they're going to hate it and all of those things. But I always say to myself, okay, you've got no choice. Play the next moment truthfully. See what, let the characters tell you what they're going to do. And if it's no good, chuck it out. So what? Who cares? It's just on my computer. Nobody will ever see it. I, I could delete the whole document. I'm hoping I can sell it to the National Archives and they'll give me a lot of money, but I, I doubt that's going to happen. Uh, and, uh, so what you're saying about the hero's journey, which 
is my favourite part of writing and storytelling. But what it really is, Joe, you're going on the journey. It's not your characters. You're going on the journey. And what I think is interesting about writing, and I, I think it's it's true about many things in life, including life in the military, I'm sure, is you discover a lot of things about yourself. You find out what application you really do have. Do you have any steel in your spine? Can you keep going when really everything's telling you to give up? And that I, I, I think is interesting. I've learned more about myself by writing about other people than I would have ever dreamed. So, you know, if you're attuned to it, if you're open to the experience, even if it's never published, you'll be a different person at the end of it. And uh, my kids tell me I'm a different person when I'm writing. They say he's unbearable. But <laughs> when he finishes, he's quite pleasant. So, you know, we discover a lot. It's a journey into yourself. And, you know, you, you think up a lot of memories and um, lots of things that have affected you. You know, uh, when I was writing Pilgrim, my dad died, my brother, my only relative, my brother, and then my mother all died within a year. And I was uh, 500 pages into Pilgrim and buried the three of them. And uh, that was tough. I got to tell you, I mean, I stood in a hospital corridor and spoke to the doctors and they said, uh, what do you want to do with your dad? And so I said, turn them off, turn the machines off. It's no way forward. It was very tough. We were a very close-knit family despite all the troubles, you know, as I mentioned before, an immigrant family. And, uh, and then I had to go home and write another few pages. And I, I remember those nights thinking to myself, if this thing should ever be successful, I earned it. I, I earned it those weeks or those months, losing my whole family. And uh, my wife always says, uh, that they were the darkest, darkest times that you could imagine. I learned something about myself. I wasn't the coward <laughs> and the spineless creature <laughs> that I probably thought I was. There was a, a little bit more to me than that. And that was a valuable lesson. One, like, I think that's amazing. You know, I think a lot of people would kind of shut down. I, I would imagine that you took that grief, that pain, and you you channeled it into your writing, and and again, I'm only a hundred pages into I Am Pilgrim, right? But I, I would imagine that somewhere in there, there's hints of that story. Yeah, were I to reread the book, which I won't do, right. um, I don't want to live with all of my failures. Um, but there is a point in in that book where I know, I know what happened. I, I, uh, you know, it's it's wound into my DNA, you know, the writing and that. But, yes, it, the grief is in there, but also the escape. It kept me sane in some ways that I had something where I had to go and sit down and say, okay, well, now he's got this problem. Now how is he going to find this terrorist? This terrorist is incredibly smart. How is he going to outthink him? So it was good. It was healthy from that point of view of not wallowing in why me and how did this happen and life's unfair. I mean, my brother was 59 and life is unfair, but you have to get on with it. And I did. And I came out the other end, a different person, but, uh, you know, with, with a book that 
you know, sold millions of copies all around the world and it's highly thought of and yada, 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 yada. And, I, you know, I'm internally grateful for that. When you were writing, did you find, um, like, if you were getting stuck in a portion of the book, that something would happen in your external world that would, like, almost offer you a, a key or a clue to that next paragraph, that next, that next beat of the story? All the time. And people will tell you that's, you know, divine providence or that's uh, serendipity. It's not. Fortune smiles on the prepared mind. That's my interpretation. I was doing a screenplay with Mel, with Mel Gibson, and um, was stuck. And I went out for a walk, and I saw this blind dog, this blind dog. I was leading another dog. It was a seeing dog. And they worked together as a team, and that gave us a solution to unstick us. I went home, I went back, and I said to him, hey, listen, why don't we do such and such? But that was because my mind was searching for the answer and I saw something that provided the answer. I think, well, I can only speak from my experience, but I'll be reading the newspaper, (laughs) goofing off, like, you know, go water the houseplants, feed the dog, um, decide to reorganise the closet, anything to avoid sitting down confronting the problem. But your mind's bubbling away all the time, so sit down and read the newspaper. And... So many times I'll read something and I'll say, my God, that's the answer. There it is. It so much of the storytelling side, not not the actual physical writing side, you know, trying to turn ideas into something approaching literature, but no, the, the actual storytelling side, it comes out of left field. But secretly, subconsciously, you're searching the whole time and you have to be open to that. That's the thing, you know, that you have to open your mind and open your heart and be widely experienced, you know, both in your own life and also in what you read and what you see, you know, movies, TV shows, newspapers, magazines, talking to people, all of these things. And so I think one of the hallmarks of good writers according to Amazon, I'm not in that category, so I can say this, is that they they use minor things which are a telling detail. They tell you volumes about somebody or something in a very, very small and economical way. There's a movie with Bette Davis called Now Voyager, and she's playing the, she's the travelling companion of a very wealthy woman, awful woman. The wealthy woman is having her makeup and her hair done by, you know, various people, you know, makeup artists and all that. And the wealthy woman is sitting there smoking. And open on the table next to her is a jar of face cream that they're using to make her more beautiful. She's smoking. She finishes the cigarette and plunges it into the face cream. Doesn't use the ashtray, just sticks it, you know, lit end first into the, into the face cream. It's a great moment. Tells you everything you ever needed to know about that woman with vast economy. And I haven't seen now Voyager probably in 40 years. And I remember that moment. I remember that and thinking to myself, my God, that's a telling detail. Somebody could have spent five pages describing what an a-hole this woman is. You didn't need to. They told you whatever you needed to know. And so when I'm approaching writing, I'm always looking 
for those telling details, for, for those small things that speak volumes about somebody's character. You know, in the old silent movies, they used to do it all the time. The guy walks out of the shop, there's a dog sitting there, he pats the dog. You say, oh, he's a good guy. And somebody else comes out and kicks the dog. Well, now you know where you are, don't you? you you've got a good guy and you've got a bad guy. And that. So, yeah, you're always looking for those telling details. And that's where the research for something like Pilgrim or Locust comes in, that you're trying to find, like Bagram Air Base in Locust. I had no idea until I really started to read that there were traffic jams there, that it was a lot like, my God, you know, you think, oh, there's the Afghan war and the US are there in, in, in this vast number. And it's sort of like, well, we could be on Times Square on a, on, a, on a bad night, you know, or whatever. And so you're looking for that telling detail that when people read it, they say, that has the ring of truth about it. You know, I mean, I could have written pages about the the ordinance that was available there, the jets coming into land, this happening, that happening, and gone into vast detail about various armaments and weapons. I don't think it would have told you as much of the fact that, you know, you can't get past Pizza Hut because of the, the line-out of Starbucks or whatever is the truth of it and that. I read that the Starbucks CIA headquarters in Langley is, by repute, the busiest Starbucks in the world. I think that tells you more about the CIA than a lot of other stuff. You know, these are these are people who are like us, <laughs> need an energy boost. So you're looking for that detail all the time. That's what keeps it interesting. My kids tell me, or the kids say to their friends, don't ever play Trivial Pursuit with him. Do not play Trivial Pursuit. He knows so many useless facts. And, uh, yeah, and I, I collect them. Do you think that your time, like if you wouldn't have been a screenwriter for all those years in Hollywood, that you wouldn't have been the author to write I Am Pilgrim and You're of the Locust? Yeah, it's a continuum. You can't segment it. I mean, I learned more about storytelling, really learned about storytelling by sitting in the editing room because I started movies in Australia and it's less silo-oriented. Everybody pitches in. If you've got a good idea, well, let's hear it. Hollywood's much more people in silos and directors do not like writers being in, in the editing room or anything like that. Well, in Australia, it wasn't like that. It was, oh, well, we're in deep shit, so everybody better start shoveling, you know? And that. so I had to live with what I'd written. And then yeah, I became a film producer, so I had every right to be there. But I had to live with what I'd written and live with all my failures. And so you sit there with the editor and you say, my God, that's some of the worst dialogue ever written. That really is. That's going to win every raspberry ever given for this. What can we do? And he says, well, why don't we cut this line, take this line from that take, why don't we play it off the other character? We'll bring the sound volume down. We'll scramble through. So I learned an enormous amount about storytelling. You know, saying in movies, you know, the big budget movies like a parachute. If it doesn't open, you're dead. And so you think very hard about the concept of your movie or your novel or your TV series or whatever it is you're doing. You're thinking, what is going to get people? out of them all, what is going to get them to want to go home and 
you were saying that binge reading locust. You know, you started off and you became a binge reader. That's the highest compliment anybody could ever have because it's saying to me that I've arrested your attention. Well, the first way to arrest your attention is to make it a subject matter that the public at large might be interested in. Once you've done that, now it's my job to make sure paragraph by paragraph, page by page, chapter by chapter, you're saying, okay, what happens next? What happens next? So, yeah, I, I learned an enormous amount from the movies. And look, you know, I worked with, you know, Australia's a strange country, <laughs> very strange, but it's got a lot of highly talented people and we were there at the beginning, really, of the Australian film industry, or not so long after it had started. I worked with, I guess, 10 people who've won Oscars, not just directors, cinematographers, sound mixers, costume designers. It was a lot of highly talented people, and I was privileged to be able to watch them and talk to them and learn from them and then go into the editing room and learn from my own mistakes. So I couldn't have done whatever I've done in novels without that experience, any more than I could have become a storyteller had I not been an immigrant child. Yeah. As you're talking, I'm thinking about like I'm reading, right? I'm binge reading the book and uh, we were on vacation and I put it down. My wife's like, what's wrong? I was like, he just switched genres. (laughs) This is crazy. I've never seen. Anyways, I got so sucked into the story. That it literally just made me put the book down and kind of like look off for a minute. The beats of the story were so fast. Yeah, yeah. I've never had a book do that before. It was like riding a train going really fast. Yeah. And there's no conductor. (laughs) That's right. I think of the book more a locust, not Pilgrim so much, but locust, I think it's more like a Christopher Nolan film. Yes. Where it twists ideas and thoughts and that very challenging thing to do. I, I think Christopher Nolan's a brilliant director. I, I, I really do. I, I'm reading a biography on him right now, the Nolan Variations. We're watching Nolan films now yeah. as I'm reading the book. Fascinating guy. It's interesting that you mentioned Nolan because a similar thought went through my head as I'm because I'm reading his biography the same time I'm reading Locust. Yeah. Anyways, sorry. <laughs> Tangent. Uh, no, no, it's you know book writing is pretty stodgy. You know, it's got a long history of that form of narrative storytelling. But storytelling's changed very dramatically, mostly due to the movies, a lot to do with streaming. I watch movies with my boy. I've got four kids, two girls, two boys. My boys are younger, and and I I watch movies with them, and um, something happens in one of these Marvel movies, and I say, why did that happen? I look at me and say, I don't know. I said, but what's the purpose of that? And they said, well, it's interesting, or it's loud, or it's a good explosion, or it's this. I said, it doesn't make any sense. They look at me and they say, yes, it does. It does because it's on the screen. I said, but I'm lost. But when they read Locust, you know, they're teenagers, when they read Locust, I said, what do you think? They're very widely read, obviously, you know, because of me. And they see a lot of movies. I said, what do you think? I said, it's really interesting, Dad. And I said, why is that? My youngest son said to me, he said, it's like most books are in black and white. Your book's in Technicolor. <laughs> and I said, really? 
So I wasn't sure this was a good thing. He said, yeah, seems really modern. Yeah. Whereas they find most books that they read, you know, are really derived from 19th century literature. The narrative beats are very predictable and all of these things. Mike, the trick that I had to go through was to take you or anybody else that's reading it on the journey. Keep them on the train. The train's out of control. It's travelling so fast. You know there's nobody in the driver's cabin. You know that there's a bridge coming up and we're unlikely to take that curve. Stay on board because you're in safe hands here. We are going to get round that curve, I promise you. Just stick with it. And people do. And they come out the other end and they say, I hope. Well, I wouldn't have thought that we could go on that journey. I wouldn't have thought that we could make that switch and come out and it all makes sense. And there's a period, uh, there's some pages at the end of Locust, which I found, for me, very moving because it told you what happened to everybody. It was one of those, you know, those pages that this person did this and this person did that. And it, it brought their lives to to a conclusion. It's not they died, but you saw who had fulfilled their ambitions and who hadn't. Now, I always loved that in movies. Near the end of American Graffiti, they do the same thing. You know, so-and-so went here, so-and-so went there. So the trick is to get to those pages and people say, wow, that was quite a journey. If they can say that, I did my job. It was. It was. And I... I don't think this ruins anything. And if, if you feel like it does, we can cut it out. But it was one of the highlights I had. It said, for a long time, I thought the wolves were threatening me. They weren't. They were calling to me, trying to show me the path ahead. I don't hear them anymore. Their job and mine is done. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. You know, ultimately, yeah, that's what I was saying before. I'm sure you're going on the same thing. You go on the emotional journey yourself. Yeah. They were my friends for years. They were my friends. And like all friends, they were admirable in some ways and not admirable in another. But they were my closest colleagues. And I got to the point where I couldn't tell them what to do. They had become so formed, hopefully on the page, but certainly in my mind. They made their own decisions. Yeah, I started off ordering them around, very much like the military. I, I, I had a lot of gold braid, and I, they did what they were told, and by God, if they didn't, it was going to be trouble. Those pages were being thrown out. But you get to a point where you can't do that anymore. They become fully formed people, and they told me what to do. And I just hoped that they would bring honour to themselves, that they would conduct themselves with courage. One of the most moving things in Locust, and again, I like you, I hope I'm not giving away too much. He says to his kids sitting up on top of a building in the wreckage of New York, they say to him, look, if you go back to help the world from here, if you go back from here, nobody will ever know what you've done. Nobody will ever know that you did it. That to me was the idea of real courage, that not doing it for recognition, not doing it for hero worship, not doing it for any other reason than that the moral imperative was to do it. I often thought of my dad when I was 
coming up with all of these ideas. No idea what he did, you know, in the jungle. My grandfather, nobody had any idea of what he did or the lives he saved or the mistakes that he made. And that, to me, it's real courage. It's not the medals and the awards and all of those things. It's the fact that somebody knew what was right. And that was how I felt about my character. He was going back knowing that there would be no recognition, knowing that he would probably die in the process, in which case he would just be forgotten. But even if he succeeded, nobody would know. And I thought, God, a man that still does it, he's worth knowing. That's the sort of guy that you wouldn't mind having your back on a bad night in Cairo, you know. Um, so, yeah, it's a journey, you know. And they ended up being nice people, thank God. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious, you wrote and published I Am Pilgrim, became wildly successful. And Harper Lee, I think about this too. I read a passage one time about Harper Lee and this author speculated that she was pinned down by the boulder of her reputation, that she had written such an amazing book Mm -hmm. that she couldn't write another one. Yeah. So when I Am Pilgrim was successful, was that in the back of your mind at all when you were writing Year of the Locust? Yeah. um, After Pilgrim came out, and as you say, you know, thank God, they you know, <laughs> gained a, a lot of success, both commercially and from the critics and everything else. Yeah, I was very depressed. It's counterintuitive, of course, you know. You should be buying Ferraris and having the time of your life. But I wasn't. I cast me down into a very dark place because ever since I was five or six, as I mentioned, I'd had one dream. And one day I would write a book that people really liked. And that wasn't necessarily great literature, but it was a great piece of storytelling. And that's what I'd always wanted. And I got a Chinese proverb, be careful what you wish for, you might get it. And I had a hole in my life. What do I do now? Like, this has been part of me. For decades, for all my life, this has been a dream. And now the dream had been taken away, not because I'd failed, but because I'd fulfilled it. And I didn't know what to do. I did not know whether, you know, obviously the the clear thing is to sit down and write another book. But I didn't have an ambition to write a second book. I had an ambition to write one successful book. So I didn't know quite what to do. And I have to say, writing, you know, Pilgrim is, you know, most books, I guess, are about 100,000 words. Between Pilgrim and Locust, I think it's probably about 560,000 words, 550. So I've written five and a half normal books. Both of those books take an enormous toll, both intellectually, physically. Yeah, I mean, Years of getting up every morning and sitting down and staring at the screen, putting life on hold whilst you do this. I was exhausted, but more than anything, I was lost. I was lost because 
I'd got what I dreamed of. And now I had to reinvent how I approached the world. I remember standing in the back, back garden of the house we were living in and talking to the British publisher who was giving me the figures. And he said, you're going to be really something. This is a book that really sticks to people's bones. I said, oh, yeah. And he said, well, you don't sound very happy about it. I said, well, I'll tell you one thing, Bill. My life will never be the same again. I know that. And I mourned. I mourned the passing of, a, of the person that I was, not because I was so successful, not that at all, but I knew it would change me. I knew instead of being this aspiring ambitious, driven, crazed human being, it would be very easy for me to sit around and say, oh, well, I just dashed that Pilgrim book off in a couple of years. It was no problem. I'd lost something that had helped define me, the wild and incredible ambition that had taken a 21-year-old to New York and made him an international foreign correspondent. I didn't do that because I was shy and sort of a bit dumb. <laughs> I, I did it because, boy, I was hungry. And Pilgrim was a three-course meal, and I wasn't sure I was hungry anymore. Somehow I got hungry again, and I thought, oh, I've got this really good idea. i got this really good idea. I'm going to write this locust thing. Oh, my God. And so the same thing will happen now. Locust is out there. It's being well-received, and now I've got to think about the next story and the next book. But it was a real learning experience for Pilgrim and nothing I anticipated. And I've got to say that having, you know, knowing many, many movie stars, famous film directors, and lots of people, you know, you meet lots of people through that in rock and roll and many things. i got to tell you, my one observation of life is, more people are destroyed by success than are ever destroyed by failure. Failure's character building. <laughs> success brings the worst out in people. There's a lesson in that. I had to learn it, and I did. But, yeah, you're right. I mean, I can quite understand what happened to Harper Lee. J.D. Salinger, Catcher in the Rye, same thing. Kept writing but only ever published one book. And uh, I think so overwhelmed by the success. And I think it's very easy to say I can't repeat it. And I wasn't in that category. <laughs> Nobody said this is a work of genius. <laughs> you retire now. No, but, but yeah, I think it's a very hard thing to deal with. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that. And, you know, when you, you're going back, recounting the quote that Kane's son was telling to him, you know, I guess it kind of like sums up your writing process. You could go through that whole thing and nobody would ever know, yeah. you know. But like that was the gamble you were willing to take because you felt like this was the thing that you had to do. And I, I think that that's so admirable. Well, thank you very much. I'm lucky I, I've been surrounded by one part of my family who I think did very admirable things. I do. I think when the call came, whatever it was, they answered. My calling was to tell stories. And I say to my kids all the time, I say, you know, most people fail because they don't try. <laughs> you know, like there's millions of people in the world who say, oh, I would have liked to have been a writer. Well, it never happened because they didn't try. They got the call, but they never answered. I got the call and 
I put my hand up. And there are those people in the world that do that, you know, not, not just writing or filmmaking or anything, but in a whole range of things, you know, Doctors Without Borders, you know, people that work in animal rescue and all of it. I mean, you know, the world's full of heroes, but they're never acknowledged. And that's what I found interesting in Locust, that he does come back. Nobody believes him, but he convinces them. And so by convincing them, he goes into an area, into a denied access area, where it's extremely unlikely he will ever return. And the moment that I I love most, I suppose, is his wife, who has been very much opposed to his (laughs) choices and his way of life. She finally says he should go. He should go. I believe him. I believe in him and I believe in what he's saying. He has to go. And that's a very courageous thing of her to do, very selfless thing for her to do. And I think it says somewhere in the book that he built the boat, but she was the wind that filled the sails. It was that thing that gave him that edge. And, yeah, you know, when I get very down about my failings and, you know, and oh, my God, why don't these words, why don't they work? What's wrong? I mean, there's not that many words in the English language. Surely you can find the right ones. Yeah, I think of my kids. I think of my wife. I, I, I think, no, I don't want them to think, oh, well, he sort of gave up or he, you know, and that. So, yeah, there's all that emotional side of it that pushes you forward. And, yeah, you know, I think one of the problems that many people, myself included, many people have is that their ambition is far greater than their reach. I would have liked to have been the greatest novelist of all time. I really would. That or Mick Jagger. I, I, I figure Mick Jagger. I figure that would have been pretty good. Not, not Mick Jagger now, but Mick Jagger at 30, I reckon. I think he probably had more fun than most of us and lived to tell the story, which is the remarkable thing. But no, I, I want to be the greatest novelist of all time. And um, it's a very confronting thing to realise that it's not going to happen. And so all you're going to do is try harder, you know? Yeah, you still got a couple couple left. Um, <laughs> let's hope. Let's hope. I might get lucky. <laughs> yeah, well, the, um, and I didn't think about it till this interview until even the way you're painting the Year of the Locust is that, you know, when we have a calling, and this is kind of like what I'm writing about right now, but maybe this interview is something that I needed to, needed to happen to get me through the next thing. But, you know, you think like if you chase your calling, it's going to be easy. And it's going to be, you know, rainbows and everything. And just like Cain in the book, it's hard and you're really not sure if that gamble is going to pay off in the end. But it's the courage to do it in spite of what the outcome could be. And it's like, what are you willing to suffer for? You know, the call is to suffer for 10 years, writing a story that you're not sure that people are even going to read. Are you willing to go through it? Yeah, that's absolutely the correct analysis of it. The greatest story ever told, in my view, and I would never say that I'm a Christian, not that good a human being, but the greatest story ever told, I I think, is the story of Christ. He knew what his calling was, Mm. and it sure wasn't rainbows, was it? 
No. He knew he was going to end up on that hill at Golgotha, tortured to death on the cross. But he did it anyway. If you believe the story, you know, there's always this discussion about was he a real character? Was he the son of God? Was he this? Was that? I don't care. It's immaterial to me. It's a great story. Yeah. Fantastic story. A carpenter born in complete anonymity who goes on a journey and shows the world a new way. You know, the Romans were busy, you know, feeding people to lions and all of this. And he converted a Roman emperor. His beliefs, not him personally, his beliefs brought compassion to Rome. It's just an incredible story. I, I mean, forget the Bible, forget all the religious baggage that goes with it. If you want to sit down and tell one hell of a story, then, you know, cast, I don't know, Christian Bale and throw Matthew McConaughey in there and see if Leonardo will will do a bit. And you've got one hell of a story. Anyway, it was his calling. And he did it because, in a way, he had no choice. That was his, his destiny. It was his karma. And he didn't deny it. He followed it to the bitter and the most terrible end that you can imagine. So that's courage. And in our own small way, each of us has that opportunity in life to do something that will make a difference. You know, a great saying, the life we lead is the rent we pay for our space on earth. Well, I'm determined, I don't know to what extent, but I'm determined to pay at least some rent. And if people read Pilgrim, or they read Locust, and they learn a little bit about courage, or it inspires them, or they think, my God, you can set off on a fairly, in Locust, a fairly straightforward mission into Iran, as much as anything going into Iran would be straightforward, get some information, or exfiltrate somebody. That's what he starts off as. He ends up saving the world, and nobody even knows. And to me, that sort of summed up life in the CIA. (laughs) God knows we will never know how many 9-11 attacks have been thwarted or similar attacks to 9-11, not just in America, but in in many Western countries. You know, there's lots of people working out there, working very hard, very intelligently, who are completely unrecognised and their work is completely unrecognised, but they do it anyway. And I don't think it's just to pay the mortgage. So sure. Sometimes, yeah, but there's other people who who it's not like that at all. So, yeah, it's a common theme through both books. Uh, when my wife read I Am Pilgrim, I, she'd read it in bits and pieces, but then she read the entire book through. And I said to her, yeah, well, what do you think? She said, it's, it's really good. I said, oh, that's great. I said, what do you think of the main character? She said, I loved him. I said, well, this is encouraging. She said, well, of course I love him. It's you. Mm. I said, what? She said, it's you. I thought, don't be ridiculous. I'm not going around waterboarding people. <laughs> you won't find me, <laughs> you know, going toe-to-toe with the world's worst terrorist or most accomplished terrorist. She said, no, no. She said, it's you. But she said, the quiet courage of never giving up. It's the nicest thing she ever said to me. It's probably the only nice thing. <laughs> but, yeah, it, it was a huge compliment. And Yeah, so to some extent, both of the books reflect my values. I don't know. Maybe people respond to it. Maybe they don't. There's nothing I can do about that. I can only write 
something that I think is truthful. What's next for you now that you're going through this process again? Yeah, yeah. Well, a few things. My eldest daughter is an equestrian rider and she uh, she rides dressage and she is training with an Olympian, a woman who won the silver medal at the Olympics. My daughter has an ambition to go to the Olympics, so I have to go up and watch her ride. To anybody listening to this whose children are thinking of getting a horse, take it from me. Don't. <laughs> Do not make that mistake. Do not. Whatever you do, buy them anything. Do not get involved in high-end horse riding. So I have to write another book, Joe. That's the truth of it because nobody in their right mind can afford this sport. So we should thank your daughter for the... Yeah, yeah. So she's doing that. Then uh, my next daughter, my second oldest child, she's at college and uh, she is a very, very fine horse rider and thankfully gave it up. And then my two boys are uh, finishing high school and one of them, my youngest boy, is uh, an outstanding golfer and thinks that he might get a golf scholarship to Stanford, which I'm encouraging enormously so that he can keep his mother and father in their old age. So it's not a cheap life. I wish it was. So poor dad has to write another book. So the publishers, in their wisdom, thought that this was a vulnerable time to attack me and say, do you want to do Pilgrim 2? And we'll give you quite a bit of money. And uh, in my stupidity and desperation, getting on this phone from my daughter saying, well, we need a new horse truck. And uh, I've just seen a two-year-old. It's a really stunning horse. I think he's going to go Grand Prix. I say, how much? And five minutes later, I've recovered. All of these things combine into this dreadful life that I have to lead. And they, I said yes to doing Pilgrim 2. So that is what I am embarking on at the moment, another adventure from our misanthropic, lonely, alienated, inhuman man that does not have any romantic interests in his life and travels around being a most miserable person you could ever imagine. That's how I view him. Uh, I've got to give him some life and bring him up, you know. So that's my next thing. But I'm also I'm working on a story about modern-day pirates in the Malacca Straits down off Singapore, the world's busiest shipping lane, which, interestingly enough, is where piracy really started back in long before Bluebeard or whoever he was, so Johnny Depp in the Caribbean or Caribbean. So it's an interesting story. It's a very interesting story because it, it concerns the DEA and um, a trade of a mould in the DEA. So I'm toying around with that and working on Pilgrim too. So I'm trying to keep busy. Um Four kids, as anybody who has one child knows that it's a nightmare. Four is four nightmares, one after another. And I'm here in Lisbon at the moment. The weather's nice and we're going to do a bit of travelling. I'm going to show the kids the south of France, point out beautiful houses that we can never afford to live in and inspire them. It's great. Well, hopefully when Pilgrim 2 comes out, maybe like... I'm in a studio now. You're coming to the studio because things really worked out for me. <laughs> and uh, we get to have another conversation. 
I'd love to. It's been really interesting. I have to tell you, doing all of the publicity tours and, and the interviews and that, and I've sat on the other side of those interviews so often that, you know, they frequently are not not the most enjoyable thing you can find because people's questions are quite often not challenging. This has been a delight. It really has been. It's been fun. I was out at dinner with with a few members of my family and they said, have you got time for dessert, Dad? And I said, look, listen, the tiramisu is really great, but I don't know if I can have one. I've got to race back up the hill to the apartment and talk to Joe. Best decision I've made. Joe, you are superior to any tiramisu in the world. <laughs> I thank you very much. It's been a joy. Thank you so much, Terry. Thank you again for listening to another episode of From the Green Notebook Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us five stars wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps us gain visibility and the opportunity to help more people on their leadership journey. Also, make sure you check out our website at www.fromthegreennotebook.com. There, you can listen to past episodes, read leadership articles written by military leaders from around the world, You can sign up for our monthly reading list email where you can learn about new books that are coming out and our Sunday reflection email that comes out every Sunday morning is really short. It's a two minute read, but I guarantee you it's going to start your week off on the right foot. Finally, make sure you follow us on Twitter at FTGN Notebook, and you can find us on Instagram and Facebook by searching for From the Green Notebook. Again, thank you so much for coming on this journey with us. I am humbled by the opportunity to learn these lessons alongside you. So please join us next week for another episode of From the Green Notebook, where we're going to help you lead with the best version of yourself. I came from the mud. There's